Question for you. You ever considered becoming a missionary? I suspect most of you would revile at the thought. I could never leave North Epping. I could never live overseas. I could never learn another language. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too settled here. I don't like travel. Couldn't take my kids out of the very fine schools that we have here. Uh, really, what about health care? And what about security issues? Let's be realistic. I couldn't go to a place that's not as safe as North Epping, which, by the way, removes just about every other place on the planet. Couldn't leave my career. My house, my dog, my mortgage, my grandkids, my... Now, I want to say, these are all legitimate considerations to a lesser or greater extent. But the first question I want us to consider this morning is, should I become a missionary or am I already a missionary? I'm a missionary. I don't mean I was a missionary. I mean I am a missionary and I believe that you should be also because Christians are missionaries. Missionaries are not people who travel overseas, though of course some do. Missionaries are people on a mission. Getting on a plane doesn't make you a missionary any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. The essence of being a missionary is not the travel. It's the intentionality. If I can borrow from Rick Warren's expression... It is the purpose-driven life of taking the gospel to others. Is that specific intention of saying, yes, the gospel has been revealed to me and in response to that, I will want to take that same gospel to other people. It doesn't necessarily involve moving beyond your room in the nursing home. It's not the travel that's on view. You don't need a passport to be a missionary, but you need to be convicted by the gospel and the need to take the gospel beyond your room, to be obedient to God's call, to respond to the claims of the gospel. In his very helpful commentary on 1 and 2 Timothy that I've been reading lately, Philip Jensen writes this, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a missionary. Properly understood, I think he's right. The gospel mandate is to trust in Jesus and in response to speak the gospel to others and commend that gospel through our lives. Consider Jesus' instructions to his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. In the equivalent passage in Mark, Jesus challenges his disciples that they need to lose their life for my sake and the gospels, Jesus said. Jesus' commission wasn't just the apostles, but to the disciples. All followers of Jesus are to respond to the gospel. Now, not all Christians, of course, are called to serve cross-culturally, or overseas, but we are all called on to the gospel mission. As a disciple of Jesus, the Apostle Paul 
was a missionary. He was a man on a mission. He was intentionally, at every opportunity he had, to proclaim the gospel, regardless of the circumstances he found himself in. Yes, he was certainly the one who travelled on these so-called missionary journeys. That was the case. He was a missionary there, but he was no less a missionary when he was three years in Ephesus. He was no less a missionary. He was chained up in a prison in Rome. He was a missionary because he had intention to share the gospel in whatever opportunity that God provided for him. Over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at what is probably the Apostle Paul's last letter. He wrote it maybe around AD 66. He was probably chained up in the notorious prison called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. There was really only one way out of that prison. That was death. In all likelihood, he was taken out and beheaded not far from that prison. So as Paul languishes in a cold dungeon, as he describes it in this very letter we're reading over these next few weeks, this cold dungeon from which there is no escape, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He knew a sword was almost literally hanging over his head. And he has the opportunity to write one last letter. So think about that for a moment. You've got an opportunity to write one last letter. What do you write? Do you you take the opportunity to sort of settle some scores knowing that, you know, there'll be no opportunity for feedback because you'll be gone? What would you write? If someone was less gracious than the Apostle Paul, then they surely would have taken the opportunity to settle some scores, to lambast those who had treated him so unfairly, who had deserted him. After all, we read in chapter 1, verse 15, he writes, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Now, there's a bit of hyperbole there, presumably, but the picture is pretty clear, isn't it? Friends, can you feel his pain? These people that he had ministered to so faithfully for years at great personal cost, now, at his time of need, have abandoned him. Paul would have surely been justified in taking this opportunity to castigate them, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he focuses, as he always focuses, on the one thing that really makes a difference, that's really important. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this letter to Timothy, his second letter to this young man that he held such enormous affection for, he writes this letter, but not just to Timothy, to all disciples, all missionaries of Jesus. It is a pastoral letter to Tim a very warm and personal letter, but it is a letter for us all. Like any good missionary letter, Paul's letters serve to do several things. They inform, they remind, they challenge, they prompt prayer and godliness, they encourage Christians to press on in their gospel mission. In this respect, this letter is not unlike Christian missionary letters that you might receive from missionaries serving overseas or cross-culturally even today. 
except that those letters, of course, would probably be, what, a uh, PDF attached to an email rather than this uh, papyrus that Paul wrote on two millennia ago. That's one difference between his letter and a missionary letter that you would receive today. But there is another more fundamental difference between Paul's missionary letters and, the, for example, the ones that uh, we wrote when we were serving as missionaries. What's the big difference? Colour photos. No, just joking. The big difference is this is the inspired word of God. Missionaries who write today write interesting, challenging letters, no doubt. But this very letter of Paul reminds us that all scripture is God with what he is writing here. Paul is consciously writing scripture. It is the inspired word of God and we need to read it as such. The main thrust of this letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy is found in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Not surprisingly, it has to do with the word, with the gospel. We'll see that very clearly as we come into the second chapter next week. He is on about the gospel, the word. To the apostle, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the main thing. For only the gospel has the power to save. Paul writes in verse 1, he is an apostle according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Apostles were appointed to preach, to explain the gospel, that eternal life is available to all who put their faith in Christ. The gospel is the main thing, which brings us to two interconnected questions in relation to chapter 1. What is the gospel? And why should we guard it? What is the gospel and why should we guard it? Well, most succinctly, he puts it in chapter 2. This is the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, he writes. The gospel is the good news that even while we were sinners... God so loved us that he sent his son to suffer and die on the cross to pay the price for the sins that you and I deserved. And by accepting Jesus as Lord and Saviour, by grace through faith, we can be assured of the forgiveness of those sins and eternal life. He reminds us of a number of important things about the gospel in this chapter 1 in verses 8 to 14. If you've got your Bibles open, you can have a look out there. You should really have it open because otherwise I could be telling you anything. You really should be checking that that's what's going on, that this is coming from God's word. The gospel he reads in, we read in verse 8 is about our Lord. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. He goes on to write in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of Jesus or of him, the apostle Paul who was in prison because of proclaiming the gospel. Disciples, he says, need not be timid about proclaiming the gospel. Why don't we have to be timid? Because we're not doing it in our own strength. Verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. Now, some people have more timid dispositions than others that's the case and that's fine that's the way God makes people with various personalities and various approaches and young Tim was like that he seemed to be the more timid character but that's not an excuse 
for not speaking the gospel. It's not an excuse for disciples to not be on the mission. That would be suggest, suggesting that faithfulness is a function of personality. But all Christians are infilled with the Holy Spirit and it is in His power that we gospel. Through His Spirit, verse 7, His Spirit, verse 7, of power and of love and of self-discipline. Paul goes further, he says, we need to be prepared to, verse 8, suffer for the gospel. Now there's a little verse we'd rather just kind of scratch out, isn't it? Suffer for the gospel? No one wants to be part of that. Has there ever been a worse kind of advertising slogan for a, for a, a movement? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me who is prisoner. Rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul speaks very personally to Tim here. And he says, man up. Stand up. Don't slink away from supporting those who speak the truth in love or those who are being unfairly treated in the court of public opinion or the court of Rugby Australia. This was not just a first century phenomenon, this is the case today. Let me read an excerpt from our Sydney Anglican's webpage about religious freedom that was just a week ago, last Sunday the 12th of May. We read this, Archbishop Glenn Davies and the chair of the Religious Freedom Reference Committee, Bishop Michael Stead, have been pushing for assurances on religious freedom as the election campaign enters its final stages. Concern about the issue has been heightened by the actions of Rugby Australia and sacking star player Israel Flower for a Christian message on Instagram. Bishop Stead raised, first raised concerns soon after the controversy began when he told the Australian newspaper last month, quote, if a rugby player can be sacked by doing nothing more than posting on his social media page what is essentially a summary of the Bible, then it's a signal to the rest of us that we better keep our mouths shut. I'm skipping down a little bit. Since Rugby Australia ruled that Falau had committed, quote, a high-level breach, end quote, of its code of conduct, Archbishop Davies from overseas sent a message of support on Twitter. I stand with Israel Falau. As an aside, we could ask how many of us here have the courage to take that stand. Going back to the quote, Dr. Stead said, in effect, people will be told to leave your religious self at home when you come to work. Australians, he said, should be very concerned about any laws which prohibit speech on the basis of a claim that you hurt my feelings. If it becomes an offence to cause offence, Christians have a problem because like the Apostle Paul, we must not shy away from preaching the offence of the cross. Galatians 5.11. Bishop said, Stead, that's the end of the quote. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our mission is to proclaim Christ and him crucified and to do that with love and care but also with courage and power. 
and to stand up for those who are prepared to do so. Verse 8, Paul writes, Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Christians, we're on a mission. And to do it faithfully means there will be suffering. God knew that. Paul reminds us that we do God's mission in his power, verse 8. Our endeavours to live a holy life, verse 9, are born out of the fact that he has saved us and his Holy Spirit dwells within us. God had always planned this and he is in control. The gospel was revealed and accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We read that in verse 10. Jesus destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And in response, we read in verse 11, God appoints people like the Apostle Paul to be heralds and apostles and teachers of that same gospel. As Christians, as missionaries, we too have the clear mandate to suffer for that gospel and to guard the gospel. But think about it logically for a moment. Why would any rational person suffer for something? Or why would they seek to guard it? Could these be the reasons for us to suffer for and guard the gospel? Paul writes, we aren't to be ashamed of the gospel, for indeed the gospel is worth suffering for. See, rational people will only intentionally suffer for something if they find it extremely important or worthwhile. Working or serving in a difficult, dangerous place or or going through a painful, prolonged medical procedure. Why would you do that unless you were thoroughly convinced that it was worthwhile? Most weeks here at All Saints, we pray for the persecuted church. Long may that practice continue. That we might not forget the needs of so many in absolutely atrocious and precarious circumstances of injustice and and persecution throughout the world. And may we be reminded here of just how good we have it in Australia the freedoms and the safety we have that we often take for granted. Christians suffer for the gospel around the world because they know it is so important. Because it's only by trusting in Jesus that any of us can be saved. The gospel is invaluable. So the Paul writes in, in verse 13, we aren't to corrupt it, but as the pattern of sound teaching, he writes, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, he reminds us we are to guard it. In fact, he uses the word twice there. In verse 14, see what it says? Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We don't guard things in North Epping, do we? We don't. It's so easy to steal stuff from your place. I don't know where you live. I haven't checked out what you've got. But my guess is that you've got 
a shed out the back that's not locked and that's got a lawnmower in it. You've got a bike up the side. You've got garden furniture there. You've got a hose that's rolled up and not chained up. There's lots of stuff I could come around and nick from your place even without breaking into the house. Why don't you guard it? I reckon there's a couple of reasons we don't guard things. Firstly, we don't value it highly enough. You know, the old bike up the side of the house, the garden hose, it requires too much effort or expense to guard it vis-a-vis the value of it. We don't care. There's another reason we don't guard it. It's because we really don't think it could be taken away. No one could steal my hill's hoist. Cement it into the ground. No one could steal that. (laughs) You obviously haven't lived in Kenya. I have vivid memories of, uh, they, they, they put in some new street signs and, uh, they put steel ones in and concreted them in the ground. The concrete was barely dry and then people were coming along and rocking them and, because they wanted that steel pole to put in their house. Made of sticks and mud. People will steal anything if they think it's valuable and it's not guarded. We didn't own much in Nairobi that was of any great value, but nevertheless we had high barbed wire fences and electric fences and and guard dogs and we had guards. We employed guards at our house. Why did we do that? Because if we didn't, everything we owned would have been quickly stolen. That would have been a hassle. But there was a more significant reason why we had security fences and guard dogs and, and guards. And that is this, that our house contained people who were exceptionally important to us. My family, invaluable. We guarded them with dogs and steel bars and alarms and guards. But that wasn't the main protection we had. We prayed every night that God would keep us safe and we asked other people to pray for our safety as well. And God did protect us. A couple of weeks ago, I was staying in a place called Marzabit up in the very north of Kenya. It was just Mars and myself uh, and we slept in the accommodation at the church compound we slept quite well, actually. We were very tired after uh, so much travel and teaching and, uh, and stuff that we were doing up north. We slept really well until uh, quite early the next morning and there was a loud bang on our door. We were woken up by the guard to see if we were okay because two people had been shot dead the night before outside our bedroom window. He was the guard, but it was not he who protected us. See, we seek to guard the things we value most. The Apostle Paul wrote that we need to guard the gospel. Verse 14, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul finished his previous letter to Timothy with the same command, to guard the precious life-saving gospel. 
Christians are to treasure the gospel, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit and be prepared to suffer for it. Guard it because it is precious. Guard it because it is the only true saving gospel. Guard it because if we don't, Satan wants to come in and see it ignored and see it distorted and see it snatched away through deception and compromise. I think there's four areas we need to guard the gospel. One is our families. This passage made particular reference to the fact that Timothy had a Christian mother and grandmother. If that's you, if you've grown up in a Christian family, then praise God for that. That is a great gift indeed. But if you've got children or grandchildren, then you have a particular responsibility to share the gospel with them. There's going to be enormous challenges from society, from peers, from family to go soft on the gospel, to compromise, to to make coming to church on Sunday less of a priority because of important sporting and family events that are on, to not support scripture in schools, to not be disciplined about reading the Bible with your family and praying with your kids, to compromise on ethical decisions concerning your kids so you can keep the peace in the house. Parents, we've got a hugely challenging role. Our primary ministry is to our family. Don't think that this is primarily all saints' responsibility. It's not. It's yours. You're the parents. If your kids don't have Christ as their Lord, look first to your own dinner table. Ask whether you are guarding the gospel in your own home. And can I add, that don't despair if that's the case but continue to pray and trust that God can draw your children back to himself. Secondly, church, we need to be ever vigilant that we guard the apostolic teaching. The pressures to compromise on the plain teaching of the Bible will continue. We saw that last year with the same-sex marriage plebiscite. We see it this day in the debate over religious freedom. We see it throughout the Anglican communion worldwide as pressures are brought to bear upon local churches to compromise on the gospel. The pressures that come with checkbooks from the West. Do not think, friends, that North Epping is immune to Satan's schemes to cause division through deceits and compromise. Thirdly, community. Who is going to stand for the gospel in North Epping if you don't? Who will be the missionary to your street if it's not you? And fourthly, the nation. We voted yesterday. We get to do that pretty regularly in this country and that is a great blessing. But that does not mean we need to remain without a voice between one election and the next. Be assured that powerful, organised, well-resourced lobby groups will continue to rail against the church in Australia in the days ahead. We must stand for the gospel, not with pride, arrogance or belligerence and not with a spirit of timidity, but with grace and with a spirit of power and love and self-disciplines. Christians need to be prepared to testify and even suffer for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have a role to play. We've each been mandated to guard the gospel, to teach the gospel, to guard the gospel with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us this precious gospel, this gift 
of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and only through him. Father, through your spirit, strengthen us that we would be diligent in guarding the gospel and seeking to teach it faithfully to others with every opportunity that you provide for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.